Welcome to the latest United We Stand podcast brought to you by Red Army Bet, a betting site with a difference. Not only are we offering the best available odds on a United win, we've also got exclusive special bets created by Reds. And as we share half our net profits with the United supporters community, no matter what, the fans can always end up winning. Check out our website, redarmybet.com, or download the app, Red Army Bet. About fans, by fans, for fans. Welcome to the latest United We Stand podcast. I'm Andy Mitten and I'm in Malmaison Hotel in Manchester, opposite the Piccadilly Station. And previously it was called the Imperial Hotel and it's got quite a storied history, uh, one relating to football, the Football League, but also Manchester United. And I'm here because a new book's come out. Harry Stafford, Manchester United's first Captain Marvel, is by Ian Gardner. And it is the story from a an early chapter in Manchester United's history. I think most people listening to this will be vaguely aware of the story of a dog um, playing a role in saving Manchester United. But I'm with Ian now, and I think you can just tell us a bit more, rather than me waffling on, about your book. Well, the thing was, uh, Stafford was such a key, a key player in the, in the formation of Manchester United Football Club. But I was amazed that nobody seemed to know anything about him. He'd be a bit of a mystery man. So it's, it was just the journey of, of just digging out the past, and uh, it's been a, a, a long trip, to say the least. Why? When did you start doing this? Oh, it's... Uh, well, put it this way, Andy, if it was a child, it'd be in secondary school now. So. Really? Yeah, it's been a de- over a decade, anyway. And what lit your interest in a Manchester United captain from... Uh, over 100 years ago? Well, I've, I've always been a, uh, into social history and, and, and especially the history of Manchester United Football Club. Yeah. I've followed them all my life, so, so it's just, it just an interest that, that really took over and became an obsession in the end. But I, uh, Mark Wiley, the museum uh, curator, put me in touch with... Uh, a guy called Matt Johnson, who's flown in from America today for the, for the launch, and he's uh, Harry Stafford's great grandson. Right. So it was it was more at first I was just passing on information to Matt, and then it, as we dug and got deeper and deeper, and the, the story became more interesting. It just then we decided to just turn it into a book. You know, it was it had to be done. Why was he such an interesting person and character? Well, he, he, was a, he was a showman. He was, he was typical of the Victorian age. He was a flashy dresser and, uh, and he was a bit of a lad as well. And, uh, these, these Drinker, are, gambler, womaniser? Uh, well, you sort prob- of got a glint in your eyes, you tell prob- me this. Probably all three of them. Okay. But, but um, he, 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 put it this way, if it wasn't for Harry Stafford, there wouldn't be any Manchester United football club. Why? Well, he, he was the one who went on the knocker raising the money when, when the winding up order came in and it was him that went to John Henry Davis to get him interested in the club and that's where the, the story of the dog came in. He exchanged his dog for Davis being involved in the club. So let's put some dates on this. When did the, the winding up order come in and, and why did Manchester United get into such a perilous financial state? Well, Newton Heath, as they were then, they, they, played, they played the games on Bank, uh, Bank Street in Clayton. It was, uh, it was a dour place. And uh, really, they were, they'd, they'd become the number two team in the town. And uh, it was just bad, bad financial money. Yeah, I do. Staley Bridge Shelter. Uh, yeah, that's uh, reserves. No, but it's... Uh, 
Yeah, they, 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 went, they, they got the winding up order and it, it was as simple as that. They were going under and it was Stafford that went to John Henry Davis. He was in one of Stafford's... He was in one of John Henry Davis's pubs at the so time. So John, John Henry Davis was a well-known local businessman. Oh, yeah, yeah. Big house in Bramall, was it? Um, well, he finished up in Bramall. Yeah. He was in Nutsford at the time. So a prominent member of the Manchester oh, yeah. business community and someone who was in a position to do something to help if he wanted to. But he wasn't a football man, was he? No, no. But I think he'd realised he'd seen, he'd seen the role that Chester's brewery had, had played in in the, the, the rise of uh, Ardwick Football Club, who became Manchester City. And uh, I think he realised that he'd do his uh, philanthropic profile no harm whatsoever being involved in the club. And I, think he, and I think he came to love the club. It was as simple as that. And he, and he, was, and he was president uh, right up to his, his death. And so how did Stafford meet Davis to be in a position to ask for money? What was the chain of events? Well, there was a fundraising bazaar on Oxford Street at St James's Hall. Beautiful building. It, it certainly is. And uh, Stafford had had his dog going round collecting money in a collection box around his neck, which is a weird thing because the, the, the bazaar was entitled Sunny Lands, and yet he had a Swiss mountain rescue dog running around collecting money. Anyway, the final, it was a four-day event, and on the final night of the event, the, the dog went missing. And it was found by a local restaurateur uh, who, who had a place just off St Anne's Square in town. And he, he, he had the dog and then passed it on to Davis. But Stafford had advertised that it had gone missing, uh, chased, chased up the advert, and it was Davis who had the dog. So he went to Davis's place to claim the dog back. Why was a dog passed on to a local businessman? Well, he had, a, he had offices just two doors away from, from, the, from the eating house that this, this guy, John Thomas, ran. He had the dog. And I think the dog was probably eating all his profits. So, so he's, he's passed the... Uh, Davis has thought, I'd like that for my daughter. Takes the dog and that's it. So Stafford ends up meeting Davis yeah. over the matter of a dog yeah. and then putting the case forward to raise money and help a stricken football club. Well, that's basically what it boils down to, yeah. yeah. So in the end, in the end, uh, it was a simple matter of Davis said he'd help the club out if Stafford let him have the dog for his daughter. And that was what happened and that's how Manchester United came to be. Where was Stafford from? He was from Crewe, Crewe born and bred, railway man. And he moved to Manchester, obviously, to play football. Was he married? Did he have a family? Did he? Oh, he was, yeah, he married uh, several times. OK. <laughs> and his reputation around Manchester was what? Oh, he was a bit of a jack the lad, I think. Yeah. yeah. And you say he wore outrageous or garish clothing. Well, he was, he was a smart, smart dress character, yeah. but he liked to tell a tale. He was a bit of a raconteur. I think he fancied himself as a, an entertainer as well as a footballer. What type of player was he? Oh, he was uh, robust by all accounts. Well, what so position? He was a right-back and, uh, and very physical right-back, but I think they all were in them days. How many games did he play for Manchester United? Oh, over 200 in, in all competitions. Between which years? Uh, he signed in 1896 and he played up till 1903. So he was there of the whole Newton Heath, Manchester United. Yeah, yeah, he was a club captain. Transition. 
how did you feel about Newton Heath becoming Manchester United? Was that seen as progress at the time to get a wider audience? Because Newton Heath's a small part of yeah. Manchester, like Everton is of Liverpool, I suppose. But Manchester was a, a world-renowned city. Well, it did seem that Manchester City had changed the name from, like I say, from Hardwick. So it was just a, a, a follow-on from that, I think. That was a progression at the, t- at the time, yeah, yeah. as football became more mainstream, that you represent the city you were from rather than the area of, of, of the city. That's right, you were from. And which other high-profile players would Stafford have been playing with? Oh, he played, again. He played with some characters like... Caesar Augustus Llewellyn Jenkins. That's some name. What's his story? Oh, Caesar Jenkins was a bit of a, a bit of a bruiser, gladiatorial tendencies. But I think a lot of them were in those days. Well, they had, they had, they had quite a few players like that. Bob Donaldson. They were all big bruising players. But it's uh, the, the sad thing is we'll never see it because obviously there was no cameras from the timeline. But, yeah. And you've been researching newspaper cuttings. Um, where, have you, where have you been doing that? Uh, oh, well, I've been in the libraries. Uh, I know them all at Crew Library by, by the first names and, and, of course, Manchester Central and uh, everywhere else in between, I think. And the, it's, it's any contact I've been able to make. I've done a lot, obviously, on the internet. makes it a lot easier now to, to chase things up. But uh, it's been a long, long slog. But the thing was, it, the more I dug the more I kept finding. So it was, it was just one of those things that kept going and kept going. And you pleased with the finished product, with the book? Yeah, I am, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I, think I get to the heart of the man. 10.95. And Stafford was never capped for his country, was he? No, no, no. Never, never played first division football. It's just, uh, so he was good at his level. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, he was he's club captain. He was yeah. out and so on. I yeah. think I think that, that meant more than anything in the day, like you know. Yeah. But uh, it's safe to say there'd be no Manchester United without him. Suppose that. Thank you for your time. That's no problem at all, Andy. Thank you very much. I'm at the book launch of Harry Stafford, Manchester United's first captain, Marvel, and I've spoken to the author Ian Gardner, and I'm with the publisher now, Ash. Ash is from Empire. He's been producing books out of Manchester as a, as a Manchester lad and tell us a bit about what it's like being a publisher in Manchester in this day and age when uh, a world of sort of digitisation I know books are still selling because I write books myself mm. um, and some of the subject areas that, that you've covered well we do a lot of novels our most successful is Karen Karen Woods she does these I think you call them kitchen sink dramas and um, we also do football and music it'd be in Manchester um, a few city books a lot of United books um, a lot of Manchester music Smiths and all this stuff so we do well with some the music books do okay with everybody obviously football books I don't know I think we've come to the end of the line we've done most of, basically every era of United's history from I think this all complete actually from the start of Newton East all the way up to present day, really. Um, and then the city's similar, although there's less to write about, to be fair. Um, but the, the music ones go well. We're doing some punk books coming up. We've got um, the guy who used to do a fanzine called Gassed Up. Um, he's doing a book on uh, the punk explosion, and stuff that I didn't know. Um, things like people wore flares at the Sex Pistols gigs and stuff like that, which you wouldn't think about. You wouldn't, and he was saying, all this nonsense about 
oh, everyone's suddenly wearing zips and putting things through their nose and stuff. Well, that was nonsense. Imagine that didn't happen. It was DIY fashion. We didn't have fashion stores. Um, they just had to make their own stuff. So you saw people just cutting drain, make, making, trying to make drain pipe jeans and stuff. <laughs> like DIY, which is punk, isn't it? So it's more punk than London, which would add their own fashion stores because people were going out and being punks and paying for them. In Manchester, you had to make your own fashion. It's just daft stuff like that. Which of your music books have been the best sellers? You've done one on Morrissey, no? We did two, we've done two tour books. We did the Morrissey's Manchester and we did the Manchester Music Tours. So you get people buying from around the world, coming over, people, following there's those big, tours. There's a big music uh, tourism thing in Manchester. Yeah. Um, started off with the Smiths. It's moved on to everybody else. Every time there's a gig, Liam Gallagher this summer, loads of Oasis fans come, you know. Um, it's not Manchester's well known for it, but it's because obviously it appeals to everybody. So um, we get a lot of tours going around. I mean, Craig Gill used to do the tours yeah. of Manchester Music. He sadly passed away yeah. last year. His wife took over and his daughter, and they do it now. Um, so yeah, it, it's a big, it's a big deal, really. Um, we used to get them. And the problem with being a small publisher is, is distribution. You end up. Uh, it's easy. With, it's easy with Amazon, but there used to be a time when you could walk in a shop and say, "Do you want that?" And they go, "Yeah, we'll have ten And come back the next month and see if I when it's sold, or they'd ring you up and say, "We've oh, sold them. Can you get some more?" It doesn't work like that now. Why? It's all centralised. There's a hub. There's a big computer. There's a guy saying, we can only do so many, so many copies in so many places, and now Waterstones only accept the top 1,000 books, which just means that unless you're a big publisher, you're not going to have that. Unless you have... Do they not have local history sections and more niche? Yeah, but there's a shelf okay. that's tucked away, yeah. and it's not in... Say you do a football book and you put it in the local... No one's going to look in the local mm. history when you want to be next to all the other football books. We get stuff in there, but... If they stop one thing, that's good. Uh, if you've done, if done like twenty United books, if we get one or two in there, I'm buzzing. <laughs> Can't believe it. Um, even in the Arndale one, you know, um, the local stores. And I used to try and try and try and get stuff in and talk to people, but it, it's like hanging your head against a brick wall. And in the end, I've just thought Amazon. Everyone criticizes Amazon, but everyone's got the same space has got a page. If you do a book, you could be self-published, or you could be the biggest publisher in the world, the biggest name in the world. You've got the same space. Um, you've got, you know, you've got your title and all that, and people can review it. And it's been brilliant. I don't know why people criticise it. I really don't, because everyone trusts Amazon. I mean, you get people. If you try to sell a book to someone now and get them to give you a tenner and you hand them the book. They'd rather go through on the top and trust them. I don't know why that is. And wait for it to arrive the next day. Yeah. I think with Amazon, the service is that good. The issues are that they don't perhaps pay as much taxes as they well, should do. Yeah, you have an unfair advantage over... I, I love bookshops. I would hate to see bookshops go. I love Waterstones, but I also take your point about the centralisation. And I've done, I've done books where... Um, some of them that have sold really well in Manchester and mm. others, yeah, we'll take four or five copies. And, no, 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 you, trust me, it's yeah, going to yeah. sell. And they'd ring back a week later, oh, can we have 160 now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'd say, yeah, 
and it wasn't me making the shout on this, but then you'd go in the store and actually Cole's autobiography would be there. And I think it's never going to sell in Manchester. There was, this a, is just... there, was a, there was a great example. We were trying to plug a book about 10 years ago and we went in the Smiths in the Trafford Centre and uh, it was a United book. I've forgotten which title that was. Or was it a City one? Either way, it was going to sell well because they were well-known in Manchester. There's a big stack of Eddie Gray autobiographies on the floor. Leeds. I thought, well, why have they got that? And then I turned to me, right, and there's a massive stack of Bruce Forsyth. And a few months later, I said, well, how did that? Because I'd didn't. i seen it in the shops, but I hadn't really heard this Bruce Forsyth. He was massive. He was still on Strictly and all this. Oh, no, it was a flop. It was in the paper. It was a flop. They lost so much money on it. And it was like a six-foot-tall stack of it. So, well, if you just thought about it and got something that people want, because um, it's aimed at, at the end of the day, it was Christmas, so it's aimed at dads in it or brothers or whatever they won a football book you know it was that so it was just they don't really think they're trying to make themselves better Waterstones have these things where they go centralised and they go local and they go centralised and they go and then it's like anything so they go from one extreme to the other and when the new exec takes over it changes 180 degrees so. because he thinks it might be better to have a bigger it's, cafe or it's, it's just what the shareholders yeah. want to hear really oh we're, we're failing because of this well the reason you're failing is because look, Amazon are taking your business and at the end of the day that's where it's all going I take your point about local bookshops but local independent shops fine I think Waterstones I think a running a chain is pretty hard nowadays. I think you've, you, they are the ones that are being swamped, really. Um, whereas you get a local bookshop in a sort of out-of-the-way town, it, it's doable. Because um, you can go in, it's a community thing, you have a cafe, you know, I could see that. Um, so Amazon's not bad for a publisher. They're not cutting you to the bone because I feel like it's a guilty secret when I use them because they're so good and they're so cheap but I hate myself for doing it because everybody does yeah my ex-missus she was railing against all this zero construct oh no I can't go to McDonald's anymore she got Amazon parcels every other day they're they're worse if you've seen those things on the news and the way they treat this I mean I've done driving for them but that's if you work in a factory, they're on you. And I've seen it through the window when I was picking stuff up. A fulfilment sense. A fulfilment. But they're like tracked. It's almost like everyone's tracked all the time. They had someone they were weighing in the bio because they can't go to the toilet and all this stuff. It was on the it was in the paper the other week. So that's the way they run it. They treat people like robots. So I can see that. And yeah, they should pay the staff. Um, and that, but unfortunately, that's the way it's going, you know. But as a, I'm quite encouraged that as a small local publisher, you don't see them as the devil incarnate, that actually they, well, they want you to do To be right. honest, we don't tend to sell. We send, sell a lot more. And I told my boss this this week, he was surprised. We sell mo- miles more Kindle ebooks because of Carol than, uh, than physical books. So that's a demographic, okay. So it's. I wish we could do it. We've run an ancient Egypt magazine we've done for years, and that's kind of only just breaking even. I wish we could do it with that. Um, I mean, you can do print on demand now and all kinds of things, so you don't need to go and spend three grand to do a print run. We haven't done with, with Ian's book, but you don't need to do, go and spend loads of money on a, on a print run and, ga- and gamble, basically. You know, you put, like, two grand down and up to get, at least get your money back and a bit of a profit. Um, you can do it bit by bit, so something that's a small project that maybe you don't think will go that well you can put it on kindle and do it like that and it makes me sound like i'm 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 a big advocate of amazon i don't know but unless somebody else comes along to replace them or or do a competition with them 
because I get all these, like Lulu and Kobo and these people, and they go, no, no, we're in competition. I know, but when I put Mr. Fun Kobo, which is Canadian, I mean, the size of my checks, like, you've got to add a couple of zeros to what they get off Amazon. So the audience just isn't there. The people don't know about it. Physical books are still selling well, aren't they? I mean, this week, Peter Crouch has put his autobiography out. Mm. It's shifting. It's mm. doing well. I know of publishers we've met in London this week who were really encouraged because in the football market, in the summer of 2006, you had Rio Ferdinand taking a big advance for a shit autobiography. Yeah, yeah. And he's now on his third one, which really kills the idea of autobiography. Uh, Ashley Cole... Well, the Rooney and, one was the famous And the Rooney one. one. You got three, a three-book deal. Five-book deal. Is it five? Yeah, Harper Sport, a million pounds. Yeah, well... I know Paul Trevelyan, uh, I don't know how I should say this, but Paul Trevelyan used to do the Roy of the Rovers. He's done it. Yeah. He still does all the cartoons. He's done You Are the Ref. They got in touch with him, Rooney's publishing, and said, We're struggling. Can you illustrate us a book about Wayne's life? I said, Well, I ain't got time. But that sums it up. That's, that's where they've got to they end up doing a cartoon book, basically, about Wayne Rooney's rise to whatever. So, um, it, wasn't, yeah. it wasn't a good it book. Makes, so that... It makes no economic sense. Yeah. And I don't know how, but I'm, if you see, I looked at the, the long list of, of books of the year that came out this week. Um, some of it's baffling, but they were a bit normal. Normally they're a bit freaky. They're a bit about Australian karate people yeah. in Japan and daft stuff like that. But these were just about normal, you know, football, cricket, normal sports. So that was a bit encouraging in a way. Um, uh, but yeah, there's about a, I think there was, there was an Irish boxer who's some got shot or something. I think that's probably a favourite to win. But anyway, there, there was there was some. That's the lad in Belfast. I mean, it's helped. He had a big Guardian interview. Yeah, yeah. That, that, uh, but we did the Gomez book uh, last year. Similar story. Um, and we hoped that that would get on there, but we've never got anybody on there. Uh, I think he was a bit too crazy for us. A bit. Not. It wasn't quite like that. You couldn't really feel sorry for him. Right. <laughs> Michael Gove. He's a good, he was a great boxer and everything, but you couldn't, when you when you searched your soul, you thought, well, he deserves it in a way. Yeah. So yeah. it was a bit like that, but that was a great... The boxing books do all right. Yeah. Um, okay. And then we've done the Colliers, the Moston, uh, 100 centenary book yeah. uh, this year. Um, so you always get support for them. And people need... Books make beautiful... Books are beautiful. They make beautiful presents. You can't, for Father's Day or for Christmas, give someone a link. No. Or send, or send them an e-book on the phone. Yeah. And, and I also think that people should buy books and support books. A lot of authors are not getting rich. No. <coughs> and I sometimes see links on websites. have got a free download for that. And I just think, you cheeky bastards. It's, it's just theft, isn't it? I feel like... Because I, I make part of my living from writing books. Mm. And I know that... They take between 800 and 1,000 hours. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I, I've spent oh, no, if you, three if you years work, if you work doing them properly. Out, if you're doing it, if you work, if you, if you work it on an hourly basis, yeah. it's so far And travelling, travelling, a huge well, amount of travel. If you're going to do world, it properly, yeah. And yeah. You know, people think it's very glamorous. Trust me, getting on a Ryanair, which is two hours late, there is no glamour in that at all. But I've got a pride in my work, mm. and I think people should, should pay for it. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. books are not that expensive anymore. No, not really. No, no, no. Uh, people don't want to pay for media full stop. People yeah. want to, People want everything free. Yeah. Um, Which is wrong. I feel like sometimes just going round to the house of someone who think has, has that attitude and just you know, 
All right, I'm just going to... I'm just going to take your table. Well, exactly. If you ask someone to build a brick wall for you and, and said, well, I'm not going to pay for that now, they wouldn't do it, would they? No. So um, you expect someone to go... I mean, quite often, to war-torn countries and report from... All this stuff with this uh, Myanmar stuff. Yeah. Report from places like that. And, not, and just put it up online and expect it to be free. Well, it's not, is it? Because there are cost attacks. You've got to get someone to Myanmar. Well, it's not only physical danger. There's the fact that you've got to have someone... These people should be getting paid. Because those, those are the stories people should... Never mind football and yeah, yeah, yeah. All, the, all the sweet Trivial stuff. stuff yeah. yeah, I mean, the real stuff. So when it comes down to... Fair enough, people think you're going to go to uh, do football journalism or whatever... Well, that's you know, it's almost like a, it's a sweet shop of the, of the journalist world, isn't it? Um, I can see why people might think that's got to be free. But you got things like Dan Taylor did the stuff on the child abuse. That was you know something that was needed a light shining on it because at the end of the day, we're all like looking at these coaches and whatever. It doesn't matter what sport, and thinking. Well, he's dodgy, or you know what I mean. So it's all those things, and people—that's the kind of thing that people think. Well, yeah, you should pay for journalism. You need to pay for journalism. Um, so uh, whether that transfers onto books, I don't. A lot of, I admit that a lot of our books, you think, well, I've read it before. This one by Ian, you won't have read it before. It's a totally new story. It's, it's basically rewriting a lot of United's history. Mark Wiley's going to be in a bit, and he'll tell you. Mark from United's Museum. Yeah, United's Museum. He he. He's in awe of the research. And I, I honestly don't know how Ian's managed to do it. He's travelled all around the... Well, I th- he hasn't travelled. He's travelled around his computer all around the world to get all his information. Uh, from Montreal, uh, New York, and then all around uh, Britain to find this information and piece it all together. Um, because it was a trail of lies. The guy left the trail of lies. So um, it's worth a read. Um, it's worth more than that. Um, and hopefully, I'm hoping, and I've said this to the guy, the people who run the hotel, you should get a blue plaque on the front of the Malmaison. Harry Stafford was here, and a PFA was founded here as well. It's a big spot for football fans. No, I'm just United fans, football fans, and they should really be taking more interest in it. I think they will, because Jackie is a United fan. She's a manager. So if she, puts her, if she gets the ducks in a row, I can see there being a blue plaque on the front, and, you know, it's a big part of United's history, a big part of football history with the PFA. That's sure. Thank you very much. And with Harry Stafford's great-grandson, what's your name and where are you uh, from? Matthew Johnson. And uh, I'm from Charleston, South Carolina, in the U.S. So, obviously, very excited to come over here for this exciting book launch today. How has the chain of events happened for you? When did you first hear that a book was being written about Harry Stafford? So, I met the author four and a half years ago in Manchester. I was actually over here for for another book. And uh, Mark Wiley from the museum, the curator of Manchester United, introduced me to Ian. And Ian was telling me he was doing all of this research for my great-grandfather. And he took me on a tour through Manchester. And I I was just blown away by his knowledge. And, uh, you know, so... As a family member, it was incredible to, you know, hear the story. And obviously, it's kind of, in some respects, a big mystery with my great-grandfather because, you know, my grandfather was abandoned at 14 years old as a little kid, you know. Obviously, Harry's playing career is well, well documented, but, his, you know, the history of Harry after he left Manchester United for our family and I think everybody else is kind of being a big, big mystery. 
Did you know your connection of growing up? Did yes, you know yes, yes. So it's, it's interesting. So yes, you know, obviously I knew my grandfather. Not that he spoke a lot about his father, and I can understand why if you get abandoned when you're when you're a kid and you know, 14 years old, uh, he went in the British military, which I think was normal back then if you, if you don't have a family. So he spoke more of his military life than he did, his, you know, of his, of his father. But uh, in, it's interesting, and I have an original letter. In 1969, my mother uh, wrote a letter to Manchester United asking for information on her grandfather, on Harry Stafford. And... Uh, you know, it came back from, from Manchester United that for health reasons, Harry Stafford moved to Australia. And uh, which, you know, from this book, you read this book, really that's not what happened. And there was this almost, I don't want to call it a, you know, just a big fake story. And, and, and that's what's so interesting is there's so many, you know, just, I guess you could call them lies. Just a lot of just misinformation. A lot of strange stories on the mystery of, of Harry Stafford. So, again, I think this book finally, you know, tells a true story. And it's, you know, in some respects, it's a, it's a tragic story. I mean, from a uh, gentleman that, you know, grew up making locomotives and, uh, you know, was a good athlete, and, you know, played for Newton Heath, became the captain, and obviously played a huge role uh, in Manchester, Manchester United's history during the bankruptcy uh, deal and the, the whole story of his St. Bernard dog major and the connection with Henry Davies and saving the club and all of this. It's, a, it's an incredible story. And then, uh, obviously, his suspension from the Football Association, almost taking the rap for all of the, you know, the interesting things that, that happened back then to get, to get players, good players, within the organization and then serving out his suspension and then coming back to the team and then, you know, mysteriously just disappearing. When you really think about it, here, you know, here and now Man Manchester United is now a very successful team, and you would think that Harry would want to stick around, you know, where they now really got all of this fame and fortune and then just, you know, really in the, in the middle of the night uh, just disappeared. And, you know, going back to Ian... You know, what a detective, you know, come back and has done all of the detective work and really, you know, discovered where Harry went. And uh, believe it or not, Harry emigrated to America, to Schenectady, New York. And uh, so this when, is where well, no, no, I mean, because your grandfather was in the British Army. So yeah, how, yeah. How did so, you well, so I got to, and, and my link to getting to America, my father. Uh, Gordon Johnson. We lived we lived in England till I was uh, 12 years old, and then we emigrated to the states. My father was in the oil business, so uh, and ended up in Houston, Texas, and that's where my mother is today. So Harry's uh, granddaughter is still alive. She's 85 years old, still lives in Houston, doing well. Uh, so that's how we ended up in the U.S. So there's really no connection with Harry moving to America or us. We just, we both ended up in America, which is in, which is interesting. But, you know, uh, Ian, like I said, you know, has traced down uh, Harry in Schenectady, New York, went back to his roots, ended up at American Locomotive that was, you know, in a big strike deal. So, you know, they were looking to hire, uh, 
you know, employees. So it was a perfect place for Harry. You to were go. in a Manchester United shirt, the very smart uh, blue one which I much prefer to the pink one. I'm not a fan of the pink one, <laughs> but I like this one. Um, are you a United fan oh, growing abs- up? Uh, yeah, were you, absolutely. Were you interested in, yeah, in absolutely. And, and I that, got, that comes from being born, born in yeah, England. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've always been a United fan. And I will say it, the Internet is an incredible thing because it's really, with the Internet, I've, I've been able to do so much more research on, on Harry and our roots and... Uh, you know, and have met some incredible people. I mean, it was Mark Wiley who reached out to me to introduce me to, to Ian. So, and I had actually sent, you know, we have some great uh, original pictures of Harry in our family that uh, have actually been used by the, by the museum, Manchester, and actually over there. Unfortunately, I didn't give them the originals. I want to, I want to keep them in the family, the, you know, the kind of treasured items of our connection to Harry Stafford. But, but they've made great copies, and if you go to the museum, you, you, know, you can see those pictures of Harry over there. So, again, very, very special and you know, not a big connection because it's not like we have any of his, like his Manchester medal or anything like that, but, but we do have some tangible original photographs of Harry. You know, for our family. So I'll let you go and enjoy the book launch here. Well, uh, real pleasure, real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the latest United We Stand podcast brought to you by Red Army Bet. We offer the best available odds on a United win as well as a host of special bets created by Red. With half our net profits being donated to United supporters groups, Red Army Bet is about fans, by fans, for fans. Check out our website, redarmybet.com or download the app, Red Army Bet. We all follow United.